our guest today on What If, hard to sum it up. She does so many things. I know her best, I think, as an actor and comedian. But Rosie, I know you know her more for all the things she does for mental health. Yeah, and your books. I bought Frazzled a few, it must have been like four years ago now. Yeah. And I read that. And then you've got a new book out now, which we're going to talk about as well. And I remember reading all about Buddhism in your book as well, which is very interesting. So, well, yeah, we'll talk about that later. I but, know, um, but you but you loved that because you were in Singapore at that time and I, you said it really helped you. Yeah, it really helped. And it was, it was a proper book. And then this one is also a proper book, but it's like a workbook. It is like it's a that, workbook. That's what I like. You're writing it. in it and you feel like you shouldn't ever write in a book, but with this it's allowed. <laughs> We're allowed to write in your book, Ruby. <laughs> it is so lovely to see you. So good to see you. So good to talk to you. And yeah, a mindfulness guide for survival. And don't we all need that anyway, but especially now? Well, I wrote it for now, but it's not really for the pandemic or post-pandemic. It's kind of, you know, for the rest of your life. And I did it to help me get through the whole thing. We have no life jacket, you know, to float when life gets really bumpy. And the reason this is kind of interactive is a lot of it is we have to know what our thoughts are, how we reacting to this. You know, we have to get it out a little bit. Otherwise, we're just kind of clogged up in panic. The whole idea of this podcast is, is what if. It's those moments of what if. And to take you right back... The biggest what if of all was your parents having to leave, having to flee and come to come to the US. And, you know, you sort of think to yourself, did you ever growing up think, well, what if they had stayed or what if they hadn't managed to get out? Well, they never really told me that they had to escape. They never mentioned it until they did that program. Who do you think you are? And then I realized the, uh, the, how close they got to not getting out. So I didn't really know. Had they not gotten out, we wouldn't be having this conversation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's the reality back then, you know, fleeing from the, fleeing from the Nazis and coming to, to America for a, for a safe haven. And your dad changed his name, didn't he? Well, not really. I mean, it was Vox. It was only yeah. a little bit. But they changed everybody's name from Schneider to... Schwartz. Everybody got their name changed. They didn't really care who you were. It's like, it's better than a number. And what was your childhood like? Because I do remember reading your book and, and one of the things that, that stuck out was the, the car that your dad drove, which is quite a strange one. What was my childhood? I wrote a book called I Get Confused. How do you want me? And there I wrote the horror stories of growing up with my parents who were not equipped to be parents. <laughs> they didn't read the manual. So they, it was, you know, wild. They had those Viennese accents. I mean, terrifying. It was, it, everything is an emergency. And I was embarrassed that we came from, you know, that they came from Austria. So I'd cover it up. My dad always tried to fit in. He'd go, well, that's the way the chicken crumbles. Because he didn't really know the expression, and you know they were they were innocents trying to trying to fit in, and he drove a Cadillac. I think he thought that was the American dream, uh, and it was. But I was so ashamed, I'd make him park about a block away so nobody at school would see that. So, do you think maybe that upbringing led you to wanting to be an actor, wanting to be a comedian, and basically wanting to be on stage? Well, I wanted to get as far away as I could, and I had no talent at all. You know, my I tried to get my school play and 4,000 people got in the play <laughs> and I didn't. You know, even the role of earthworm, I didn't get it. I got like, I got second. I was in the, I was in the last running. I really was bad, but I needed to get out of there badly. So I came to Europe and I lived by myself in a bed set. My parents gave me about 
$2 a week. They didn't want me around either. So I worked on a Juliet speech for two years and I made a wimple out of cardboard and auditioned for RADA and they said absolutely not. It was appalling because I started off the Juliet speech. I put this on Girls on Top, actually, where I was on stage. I knew Juliet was upset, so I was going, my dog is dead, my dog is dead. So I cry, but I said my dog is dead out loud. And they thought, oh. well, that Juliet doesn't say that. And so I didn't get in, but I did get into, finally, the Royal Shakespeare Company. There's a leap in time. And I met Alan Rickman, who became my mentor for the next 30 years. And he helped me write comedy and he helped me act. So without him, it's what if I would be in an institution. Oh, the, the, the stories you hear about him, he's just the loveliest, kindest man. And it's great to hear you saying that and, and the fact that he helped you so, so much. Because we all need that in our lives, don't we? We all need that person that we can say you made the difference. I've never had anybody that cared like that. And he protected me from my parents. And when my dad would say, oh, she's uh, it, it, this is a kook. They're laughing at her. They're not laughing with her. He would say, you know, Mr. Wax, she's quite talented. And he really defended me. But I wouldn't be where I am if it wasn't for Rickman. That was as close as a friend as I ever had. So there you go. Oh, and going back a little bit before that, before you came to the UK, are we right in saying that you started a degree in psychology? Yeah, a little bit. I didn't get very far because I wanted to, you know, I needed to get out of there. So I didn't finish. <laughs> and then I did after I was removed from television. I mean, I remember watching you and just thinking you were really different, really ahead of your time. And I always thought of you as supremely confident and, and what you were doing. Was that what was going on? Did you know exactly what was happening when you were doing these interviews? Because nobody interviewed like that. You know, it was people would come into a studio and sit and talk to Michael Parkinson, but they wouldn't, they wouldn't be out there and asking the cheeky and probing questions in the way that you did. First of all, um, you wouldn't get away with that anymore because I'd have a week with some of these people. You know, the right. PR team backed off because sometimes they'd say you can have 10 minutes. But if you made Bette Midler or somebody laugh, they'd say, oh, I want to keep her around. So sometimes I stuck around five days and then we had a choice. <laughs> it looked like we were intimate friends, but we actually spent a lot of time together. Mm -hmm. I mean, even, well, except for Donald Trump, who hated me on side and threw me off his plane. You said you were thrown out of television. What was that to do with the fact that you were, you, you know, by then, you know, you were very open about your, your mental health. Had it to do with that? Was it the time that we were living in? What do you think it was? Some men came and took my job. They took my slot. But I'm not angry because because of them. I, not, I'm not talking about Louis because he was really decent when uh, he did his interview with me. Really generous. I then became interested in the mind again and went to Oxford. I wouldn't have done that. You know, so I kind of thank them for letting me reinvent myself because if you hold on to TV, except for you, Lorraine, especially as a comedian, <laughs> well, you know, and I, they thought that I was a joke, which I really wasn't. I, that was just my shtick of being that, you know, kind of goofy. I really wasn't that in real life, and I wasn't confident because I had depression, but I hid that one well. So because I got to Oxford, I learned mindfulness and how the brain works. And I'm not saying I'm perfect. I mean, I, I'm addicted to anger, but I realize it. So I go, well, Ruby, that's almost your allergy. Watch it. And it does help me with my depression. It means I can see when it's coming rather than being suddenly hit over the head with it. So because of all that, because of being thrown out on TV, 
<sighs> Luckily, I got into school again, but it could be a tragedy when somebody is, you know, I have to feed my kids, is suddenly taken out of the job that they love so much and work so hard to get into. Mm. And that's that is hard to deal with. It's hard for anybody to deal with. Of course it is. But I know that you you reach such a a wide range of people. I mean, like you know, Rosie was saying, you think of Ruby as someone who's a mental an expert in mental health and who's been through all of that and who knows what she's talking about. Mm. I think I read the. I think I was just in a bookshop and I stumbled upon Frazzled, and yeah. then that's when I was like, oh, Ruby works. I think the younger yeah. generation. Thank God that, you know, when I do my shows or, you know, they buy the books, they think, oh, she's the expert on that. Otherwise, people would go, oh, yeah, weren't you around in, you know, 1742? You were like something. <laughs> and you go, I remember people, you know, and you go, you have to go, yes, I was. You know, then, <laughs> oh, and then they say, well, we don't see you anymore. Right. That's a good one. When I get in taxis and they say, we don't see anymore. Yeah. And I want to say, well, I don't see you much either. And it's interesting, though, that you you were kind of one of the first, I think, one of the first women anyway to have your own chat show. You had your own chat show on, on Channel 4. And then to do these things with the BBC and to do all of these interviews at a time when we didn't have social media and we didn't have the sort of control that the PRs have now. You know, you, you you didn't have to deal with all of that. How do you think you would have dealt with social media at that time? Being somebody who I thought was incredibly confident, but clearly, you know, you did. You you said, you know, you had you had depression. You were you were dealing with that in in an incredible way. Well, social media, you wouldn't have known I had depression either. I'd probably be quite zany on social media. And at the time, it got 15 million viewers. Uh, you know, yeah. I, it just, I had no competition. And now when I'm watching the shows, because they made me watch it for the, you know, the show I'm, that's coming out at, at the end of August, I had to look at myself and I hadn't seen myself for 25 years. I never watched it. Oh my God, it was such a shock. First of all, Lorraine, nobody told me I was that cute. You didn't tell me. And now I think, what a waste. What a waste. You know, the kind of show I had, had a, had a sell-by date. You know, you have to reinvent. Because I was playing a character, you're yourself, and yourself is charming and perky. And, uh, you know, I'd probably <laughs> like to date you, Lorraine. But <laughs> and when you were watching through all of them, do you have any sort of moments that stood out for you as maybe your favourite one or maybe your least favourite one? We've maybe covered Donald Trump and don't need to mention his name ever again. <laughs> But any standout moments? Yeah, Madonna's terrible too. You know, Lorraine, when you feel you've really hit a dud and you've done it wrong, you know how you get that sick feeling? I'm just interrupting her. I'm asking stupid questions. I'm doing crazy things because I'm thinking, well, she's not pulling her weight. So I put her underpants on my head. It's just so embarrassing. But I remember that. I remember that vividly. And she is not the easiest person to do. I mean, she really isn't. You know, she'll, she, she's got that, that sort of attitude that she's going to probably make it quite hard for you if she feels like that on that day. But, I mean, I don't think you would never now get the access that you got to Madonna. That just wouldn't happen now. Now they can control their own stuff. I guess they can now, Ruby, can't they? They can do their own social media, put stuff out on Instagram if they want yeah, to. Yeah, and those were movie stars. You know, they were the real thing. So they had more control. I mean, there's still some now. So they would tell their PR, go away. I, you know, sometimes, I, as I said, I had 10 minutes. Like with 
Tom Hanks or whatever, and they'd tell the PR, back off, I'm having a really good time. But at least I got my foot in there. You know, part of it was I didn't just ask the same old questions. I would make them laugh a lot before the cameras went on. And then that's fair game. Then I sort of say, okay, now you give it to me. And I never exposed them. I never went dirty on them, you know, and knew some fact and then pulled it out. So they trusted me. And the idea was is to get them to be human, like who they were behind their mask. And that was my motivation. And people kind of liked that. You know, they liked that I wasn't treating like, oh, you're so famous. Or, well, I read in the paper that you had an aff-. I didn't do that. I talked to them like human beings. And so it went on and on. Now PR would step in and say, we don't want you to know who these people are. They have an image. They have a brand. We don't want to know, you know, that Pamela Anderson would have liked to play Ham. We don't want to know that. We just want the image because now branding sells. Nobody likes a human, and I do. I like when people are real. I don't like when they're being phony. And I was so phony. Do you think because you've struggled with mental health and, as you've said, you know you had depression, did that make you better at doing your job, though? Did that make you a better interviewer? Were you, did you have more empathy? Oh, no, not at all. No? If you had depression, you shut down. Clearly, you don't have it. You're, no, you're no. dead. I mean, you wouldn't be able to raise your arm, let alone move, when you really are in it. And then as soon as it's over, you forget it as quickly as you can because it, it's, a, it's a trip to hell. It has nothing to do with being a comedian because, you know, there's one in four people with a mental illness and one in four people aren't that funny. So it has nothing to do with um, my career. There's people that are, well, look at you. You're a great interviewer. Have you had depression? I've not had depression. I've not because I obviously I would know, you know, I would know. But like everybody, especially just now, I have had I would what I would call anxiety. You know, I never used to worry about things as much as I do now, and I think I, I worry about a lot of things. But I do. I wouldn't say that I have a, a a mental health problem. But at the same time, I think because everybody is more open about it now, if there was a problem, I would shout for help right away. Which I don't think you could back then it was still looked upon as something it's a weird thing to say but something like you're failing or you know that which is crazy to say that but that's how people look at it sometimes oh there was such a stigma when I started you know that's that's why I got out of tv it started to show and I didn't want you know people didn't around me didn't quite know what had happened and I'd lose my temper and my eyes were glazed So I had to get out of TV and you'd never tell anybody that that's what you had. And then as I did my shows, the audience would stand up in the second half and say, this is what's wrong with them. I I made people come out of the closet, but they were safe in the theater. And then I started frazzled. And now I, I totally am speaking to the people who are frazzled, which means anxious, which means, you know, they're not mentally ill, though, please buy the book, but they're just like you. We are anxious. Yeah. There's reasons why we're anxious. We're pumped with news day and night. We're, you know, if on social media, you don't get acknowledged. You could, you know, the self-esteem hits the floor. So as I say, going back to my book only because it's, it's my baby, is that I wrote this for people to be able to deal with this malaise of living in constant anxiety and and thinking, how do I depressurize my brain? You know, so many people on Frazzled used to say, I have brain fog, I can't read, I can't move, I can only hoover. Or now they're still scared, they don't know whether to go out or stay in. So that's why the workbook, you know, to help you 
<laughs> we need that in the 21st century. Instead of pretending everything's okay, you know, before everything was, people answered fine. Well, you can still answer fine because you don't want to hold people up, but I think we all know we're not fine. So I like to see what mindfulness does or cognitive therapy or even they uh, nuns praying have real shifts in their brain. They're, you know, the part that's really alarmed comes down. The part that um, churns thoughts, it changes. There are certain things that does change the brain and mindfulness is a pretty good sample. And I don't mean the coloring book. It's not for everybody, but it has become much more accepted. I mean, it used to be not that long ago that people would sort of look at you a bit askance and say, oh, I'm, I'm not sure about that. And mindful, oh, no, that's not for me. And now I think people are generally, especially the next generation that's coming up, you know, people in their their 20s, 30s and younger are much more open to that. They're much more open to say, well, yeah. And, and also it gives you back control, doesn't it? Mindfulness is a terrible word. It's brain training. It's like going to the gym yeah. and getting a sit-up. It depends what you mean by it. If you think it's all your eyes are thrown back in bliss and you're hearing bells and you're levitating off your gluten-free cushion, that ain't it. You know, right. it's, it's actually a really good exercise. You do it a few minutes a day, just like going to the gym. And a muscle, it's not muscle, it's actually more connections between the neurons, develops an area that it gives you the ability to pull focus to stay with what you're focused on, to lower your stress hormones, everything we need, you know, we need our attention. And that's w what it does. It's exactly like if you don't go to a gym, you're not going to get a six pack. You can wish it all you want. You can wave crystals. You can throw some angel cards. You have to, you know, everything we've learned is by repetition. So why would mindfulness is such a terrible word. Brain workout, that's what it should be called, brain exercise. Because if you say that, then people go, oh, right, OK, so it's just another part of your body that you are working out. Maybe I should have called this book Brain Workout. Oh, shoot, it's too late. Cross it out. Cross it out on the cover. So what if you had continued to work in TV? Oh, by now I would have burnt out. And by now, I asked when I was doing it, you know, I had done OJ and I'd done Trump. You know, I, I was a good interviewer. It's just I had to make it funny. But John Simpson had lined up for me to do Gaddafi and Arafat. And the person who was commissioner said, absolutely not. She has to do game shows or something. And that's when I knew it was over. If I could have gone on to the news or played some serious, I don't mean the news, I mean interesting, deep, dark people, I would have latched onto that one. But they wouldn't let me go there. Because, you know, I was branded as being hilarious or zany. I would have loved to see you doing Arafat in all of these interviews. That would be amazing. Well, I'm not her. She's a real intellect. But if I was behind the camera, that's what I should have done. Then, like with OJ, I ask really good questions. And I'm not being zany. I, you know, if you didn't see me because it, the image of me was this kind of American, if I was behind the camera and they let me ask the right questions, that would have been interesting. But I'm not Christian. She's a genius, I think, at interviewing. I'm not in that realm. But I would have made an interesting show. Oh, very much so, very much so. Do you never miss it? Would you? Would, is there anything that would sort of tempt you back? I mean, especially as we're, we're seeing your interviews from before, you know, from when you were doing them in the, in the 90s. Does that make you want to do more? I watch them, as I said, because they're coming out again. 
I, I can't do it anymore. I couldn't, I'm not that person anymore. It would be impossible. I could, you know, I can't sit behind a desk and, and be zany. I know it seems like it would be easy, but it's, that wasn't my thing when I was with them. It looks like I'm doing Graham Norton a little bit, but that's because we're doing fast cutting. So it comes in with a funny line, but I'm doing a lot of talk with them about our lives and what's going on. And that was my pleasure. Not just to do one wise, that wasn't my kick. And I, I couldn't do it now. And my, what I'm doing, you know, the, the brain and being around neuroscience, you know, I like mm. studying science and I was never smart as a kid. I got thrown out of busy beaver nursery school. So talk about brains changing this late in mm -hmm. life, this late in life, because what if I had stayed in TV, I got something else. And this time, no man can take it from me. Are you happier doing what you do now? Do you get more satisfaction from the shows that you do? And as you said, you get people telling you very, gosh, very intimate things. You know, they, they tell you things that they probably wouldn't tell their best friend in this situation of a theatre because you make it safe. I like people coming up to me on the street and saying, oh, you know, my sister had a breakdown or whatever, and they ask me questions. I like that more than people coming up and just pointing and saying, hey, that was funny when you said that to Madonna. I don't mind that, but I like the other one better. And I like writing books because they last forever. And I write them for me. As I said, I wrote this one, so to get me through the pandemic. I later on, I hope people buy it. I mean, please buy it, but that's what I want. I want to help, I want guidance. So I don't make this stuff up. I read all these books by very smart cookies and I'm good at translating to make it, you know, accessible. I wanted to ask how you went from the Shakespeare Company to doing the TV work and doing the interviews. I think it's because, I can't remember. I, <laughs> I, can't, I wasn't a very good actress, even though I was in the Royal Shakespeare Company, but I wrote funny and Rickman said, write comedy. So I did. And then I wrote Summer Not the Nine O'Clock News and then Dawn and Jennifer were put, we got together and we wrote Girls on Top. But I really wasn't talented enough <laughs> to continue as an actress. But when it was my own writing, I could do it. So again, thank God I met Dawn and Jennifer. Oh, no, before I met Dawn and Jennifer, I was doing the Edinburgh Festival because Rickman had directed me in my first show. And I had to do an interview with Michael Grade. And we both, and it was like at two in the morning because, you know, things take long in one of those tents. And we both got drunk. And I went on stage with him, and I do not remember what happened, what I did, but afterwards I had a talk show. To this day, people point to me and laugh and say, boy, that talk, but I don't know what we did. But I remember afterwards Paul Jackson saying, you've got a, your own series on TV. So that's how it started. God, isn't it funny how, how things can, can change like that? It's remarkable. But you said, you know, you said there very self-deprecating that you, you didn't think you were a, a great actress but for goodness sake Alan Rickman believed in you and if he says you're good you're good he actually didn't say I was a great actress he saw that I could maybe be a comedian but he didn't think I was that good but he knew I could write funny so he would do my lines and I'd cry I would cry laughing because he was that good. And then I'd try to imitate him and it was never that funny. And he'd say, stop looking so desperate. And only recently, 
Juliet Stevenson said, Alan would now be proud because I don't look desperate anymore, but it's taken me 70 years, <laughs> no, <laughs> 500 years to finally get a note, you know, that made sense. But I wasn't good in the beginning. He showed me how to do comedy. Wow. What was the best piece of advice he gave you, do you think, that you, you sort of, that stays with you? Don't be desperate and don't ask the audience to love you. Just lay back and say the lines. Perfect. I like that. I mean, he was just something very, just a very, very special, very, very special man. How important have your family been in supporting you when you have perhaps been at your lowest and when things have been really tough and you've had to go into treatment and anybody that has to go into any sort of treatment, they always need a support system. So I guess you would have relied heavily on your family and your friends. Well, I didn't really tell my friends. And in the beginning, my family didn't. Ed knew, but my kids didn't know because I didn't, they were too young. But when they yeah. were around 16 and I had another episode, then Ed took them into the institution and they could see other people with depression and they are probably the most interesting people on earth. So my, my kids weren't scared and they knew if they got it, there's something called medication. I think if you try to hide it, especially when they're, well, I think they have to know at some point so they're not fearful of it. So they did find out, but I was lucky enough, I had a husband who could hide it when they were really young. He'd just say, because I had a job that wasn't nine to five, he'd just say, I was doing a documentary. Right, right. And that was the, but yeah, and when they're little, you're right, you don't want to make them make them scared or anything. But you, by being so open, I think, and I'm sure you'd agree, Rosie, made it easier for other people. Yeah, made it easier for, for people to actually talk about these things. And, you know, talking is great. I mean, we do have to take some action, though. I mean, I think we're, you know, a lot of people have said, and I'm, I'm sure I'm the only one, I'm sure you would agree, that when we get out of this pandemic, we're probably going to go into another one and it's going to be a, a mental health pandemic. People are people are really suffering and I think we won't know the extent of that for a little while. Before we pretend everything's fine, which is what humans do, you know, we're resilient, but we have to remember that we were really dependent on community, you know, even though we didn't see each other. Certainly on frazzled families got closer. We all banged pots and pans because we thank the national health. There was a community of sorts, and I hope we don't forget that. And I hope we don't forget how unprepared we were for, sorry to go on about my book, for things like loneliness. <laughs> we were lonely before. Now, okay, I, I give you away. We're still going to be lonely, but there's a difference between isolation and loneliness. And unless something's terrible, you know, you're, you can't move out of the house then you have a problem. But if we have compassion toward each other, I hope somebody visits you. You know what I mean? I hope when we get out, there's town halls where we can meet and talk. Frazzle Cafe was a community, but we need each other. Humans were born to bond. And some of the exercises, again, in the book is how to enhance compassion. But it's first about giving yourself compassion. And there's exercises. If we were natural people who are empathetic, we would be showing it a lot more. So we're a little bit rusty, but like everything, it can be practiced. But you have to practice it. You know, you have to intentionally send yourself something soothing so that you can calm down your stress. If we're too stressed, our brains are too, uh, you know, heightened to be able to think about other people. And if you can cool down that red mist, then we can actually listen to each other. And that was the beauty of that community online is that 
people weren't distracted because we were on the very piece of equipment that used to distract you. And I could get closer to them and imagine what their lives were like much more than I do in real life. You could see people paying attention. And that's, again, the workbook gives you a way to pay attention, to listen to somebody and don't just go, yeah, I'm waiting for you to finish so I can say my next line. Really let the person um, <laughs> tell you what their life is like. Um, Even if you're just in business with them, they'll feel it. They can feel compassion. And that's, you know, how we roll. And humans are at their best when they're listening to each other and care. But again, I hope we learn that from this pandemic. Yeah, you're right about listening. It's so important. I mean, what, what I always say to anybody who wants to to get into television, maybe to talk to people, you know, to do, whether it's a, a chat show, whether it's interviews, whatever it may be, is the first thing you've got to do is it's not about you and do your homework. It's not about you and listen to what the other people's saying and, and go with them. It's it's so important. And that's just not about, you know, doing this job. That That's for life, isn't it? That's that's what we're, that's what we don't do. And that's what we haven't been doing, especially, especially in countries like this, especially in the United States. We just, we don't do it as much as we should. And it's the only way forward. It really is. I mean, otherwise, I, I don't know, we're, we're going to be in a terrible state. Well, you know why you don't get tired, I feel, because you're curious. And that's another thing we need to exercise is, again, get out of your cocoon of self-absorption. And really, you know, if this wasn't my interview, don't think I wouldn't be throwing it back. Like, where'd you get that shirt? <laughs> <laughs> and what have you been doing? And how did you get through it? I mean, it's, it's an interview. Curiosity is what another thing we need to exercise. You know, how do you focus? And really, because when we see something that we've never seen before, which mostly is in front of our eyes, but we're sleepwalking, thinking, thinking about something else, is only when, you, when something is novel do you actually grow more neurons, right? The brain gets more resilient. If everything is the same old, same old, the neurons, you know, which is who you are, they wither and die and you become rigid. And, you know, when you get older, you just do this, you know, same thing. That's really bad for your health. If you stay curious, again, work at it. It doesn't come because you wish it. That makes you a happier person. You know, if it, after this interview, I'm not drained because I have to go back to work. This was a good interview. If I felt, oh, my God, I'm dragging a mule up the staircase <laughs> I would be exhausted no you're so right and curiosity I remember going to a, a, a lecture that Michael Palin gave and Michael Palin is a huge hero of mine I, I think he's wonderful and that's the thing he said at the end he said never you never ever lose that sense of curiosity that almost childlike sense of curiosity wanting to find out basically everything everything why 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 do you remember when you were a kid and you said why why you did Rose Everything was why. Why is the sky blue? Why? I couldn't answer your questions sometimes, but I love the fact that you you said them. And curiosity is so important and we don't think about it enough or highlight it enough. We end each episode by getting guests to tell us their biggest fail, regret and win. They don't have to be very serious. They can be funny. So we'll start with fail. Oh, I did some TV shows after my breakdown to, you know, to hold on and, and stay in the spotlight, like Cirque du Soleil. And it was... it. Somebody else would be thrilled. It made me sick. I just can't do those shows where you have a, a like wall-to-wall -wall teeth and you're rigid and you <laughs> pretend to be interested and you couldn't give a damn. I don't, you know, D-list celebrities hanging by their nostrils 
isn't my, I mean, I'm being a snob. It just made, and I was depressed. So the show was a total disaster. And I remember saying, so when are we doing the next series? And they said, you're not. <laughs> and it's on, t it was on TV. And you watch a woman with depression. You can see it. My eyes are dead. No matter how hard I smiled, my eyes were just dead with tears yeah. rolling down. But oh. I thought, oh, keep going, Ruby. And it was hideous. And um, what about a regret? I regret that I didn't go to university earlier because I thought I was stupid when I was in my 20s. And I would have liked to study what I study now. Mm -hmm. So I regret that my parents told me I was dumb and I believed them. And so there was a whole nother box waiting to come out. So, you know, I waited too long, but at least I know it now. It's funny, it's normally the other way that parents would encourage you to go to uni and they tell you you have to go, otherwise... I did go to uni, but they had already said I was stupid, so I failed. I know, it's just, it's just really just really sad. It's incredible that you bounce back from that and have had all of the success and will continue to, to do so. Do you kind of have that thing when someone says that you can't do something that's like, oh, okay, that means I will? Now I do. I mean, who goes to Oxford when they're in their 50s? <laughs> no, it's great. I think it's wonderful. You could kick ass with the Cirque du Soleil now. You could probably do the Cirque du Soleil. You could be the act. <laughs> <laughs> They'd still break me. <laughs> and what about a win? A win is when I got my OBE as an American and I wish my parents were alive because they would have said, there's been some mistake. They were giving it to somebody else. So I wish they saw that. And then my win is having my kids, which is the ultimate win, because they're all hilarious. My daughters are in, they're comedians. They're in, called siblings. They're way more funny than I'll ever be. And my son is a coder and just got married. And so these are, these. this is a triumph. Luckily, the genes of the waxes didn't carry on. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that is a lovely win. That is a, that's a really that's a really good one, Ruby. An absolute joy to talk to you. Thank you so so much. And a mindfulness guide for survival is out right now. And of course, uh, you can enjoy the, enjoy the golden interviews that you did with with some incredible people. Absolutely amazing. And Donald Trump as well. <laughs> but it's it's absolutely worth a look. Great to see you. Thank you so so much. <laughs> 